love sushi, I love Japan. My social life has hit the fan. All I have is anime, so I guess there's just one thing to say. Guru Gamesh, my life's a mess. My figure collection is racking up debt. My wife has left, my house is gone. Time to get my butt to Sakura Con. Guru Gamesh. Welcome to the Guru Gamesh podcast, the only in one place for anime discussion on the internet. Do not question that. I am the host, the most mostly Jay. Uh, being enraptured in this wonderful forest, uh, we've lost Vikram in the forest. Uh, I, I don't know how. It's mainly just a bunch of green. He'd probably stick out. But, you know, I've still got Gabe with me. Uh, just the boy. I'm kind of half asleep. I'm just, I'm just here drinking my tea. Which is very appropriate considering we are being whisked away to the dreamlike world of my neighbor Totoro about the story of, of nature and the most merchandisable plush Japan has made since <laughs> Pikachu came out. I mean, this is a good 10 years before Pikachu got really big. Yeah, so. I was going to say, as much as a lot of this will be discussing how this film goes against the grain of how anime is produced, but the one way it didn't is the fact that capitalism got a hold of this and shook it for every yen it was friggin' worth. Really, for the kind of themes that we see in a lot of Studio Ghibli films, the themes that kind of go against, that aren't quite anti-capitalist, but yeah. seem to be leaning in that direction of really supporting like the everyman over anything else. Mm. Ghibli makes a lot of money off a lot of their products um, because they're very popular, and a lot of that comes from Totoro. Totoro's heavily marketed. Whenever, like, at least on the Blu-ray releases that Netflix are using, their logo is still Totoro. The, their mascot is Totoro. He's one of the. He is one of the most famous characters in like animation. Yes, amongst Japanese children, especially. I think that's a discredit to the weird goop worm monsters from uh, Nausicaa. Why aren't they the mascot? Are you talking shit about the Yomi? Are you, are you saying they didn't sell any plushes to young girls, Gabe? I would, I would absolutely buy an Omu plushie. Just telling you now, I I want a giant insect. Plush. Yeah, but you are a twenty-five-year-old skinny white man and and weren't the target demographic in the 1980s. Well, you were, but not for Studio Ghibli. Uh, so, one of the things we're going to talk about is the fact that we keep talking about how this film has gone against the grain. Now, in hindsight, this seems a bit funny, considering it's a very... The Ghibli aesthetic kind of is all traced back to this. But if you look at what Japan was making in its golden decade, this film really is very different. Gabe, we're talking about the 80s, and this is when we get to be old men for a second, because despite the fact that we weren't alive during this period, uh, all we do is talk about fucking boomer anime that no one else cares about, so this is finally our moment to force our audience to listen to exactly that. And the film we're using to discuss that is Totoro, which is... Not like a lot of other 80s anime. No, so for context, the 80s was a big science fiction boom for Japan. Like, the success of Gundam and then the lightning in a bottle striking twice moment with Super Dimension Fortress Macross meant that, you know, anime was largely sweeping science fiction, melodrama, with lots of intense mechanical animation. Like, a lot of copycats sprung up yeah. uh, against those series, and it was definitely japan realized the profitability and the potential of adult storytelling yes japan the 80s is when 
OVAs really began kicking off around 1984 and 1985 with probably the most famous series that started the OVA boom is Megazone 23. And that's when you start to see a really large influx of shows influenced, or OVAs especially, influenced by stuff like Gundam with its more adult themes being targeted at adults directly. Yeah, and especially considering a lot of uh, the 80s in Japan, because of uh, whoopsie-doo, Ronald Reagan did a thing where he gave a bunch of money to everyone, Japan was um, booming economically, and so... They were fucking minted in all the words. Yes. And they had enough money to just throw things, throw not, things at Not projects. just in terms of money, I mean in terms of like, you know, the, the action slock of uh, the 80s, like your Stallones, your, your Schwarzeneggers, that bleeds back into anime with a lot of like, you know anime adaptations like you know Hatsune Ken Fist of the North Star yes. and you know a lot of just you know manly men doing manly things in space but also whoopsie do we did war crimes like this is a very Japanese very low-key children's film in a decade where adults were the prime like you always were going to have children shown in adaptations this, this, this is not to say that kids anime in the 80s wasn't a thing because that would that would just be but silly the, but like from a pop culture standpoint like the biggest manga was akira the yep. biggest anime was were gundam and macross and you know this whole generation of science science fiction ruled the school in the age, especially considering japan also like you know never forgot the original star wars trilogy like it this legacy was kind of like you know the, it 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 burned very brightly but also faded just as quickly when they realized oh no we don't have any money anymore and we can't make this expensive niche shit that these weird nerds are gonna buy on vcr no and yeah again while we're saying there were a lot of kids shows in the 80s because you still had all of your shonen series getting their television adaptations but most of those are aimed at boys things like fisted north star dragon ball and and even so in terms of in japan the manga are way more culturally relevant oh yeah massively but you also have this huge swath of magical girl shows if you were a young girl watching anime in the 80s in japan most of the stuff that was going to be out there that was aimed at you was magical girl it was about girls transforming and going on adventures while waving a big magic stick around buy the toys yes literally buy the toys and those things are all great Turtles is a very different movie to that very different to this by the slightly different type of toy by the bit by the big fluffy teddy instead of the plastic wand that you can hit your animals with <laughs> the amount of dogs that must have gotten whacked with those things man i swear Jesus. but no like the fact that this is totoro is set in sort of like a post-war japan in the 1950s it's set in a rural village it, it is a very japanese film which especially considering a lot of i mean i've known you know, various women with colorful hair have had like Totoro merchandise just on their backpacks and uh, sweaters and uh, have, haven't taken my phone number. But uh, aside from <laughs> aside from the point, <laughs> um, the fact that this film was brought over to uh, America sort of in a proper form in the mid 2000s in the, yeah. in, with the Disney dubs, like children being exposed to this there's nothing wrong like this is the perfect children's anime film but also from japanese perspective there's a lot of sort of cultural stuff which you may not have seen in your standard disney's there's you know adults and children uh bathing together there's like a lot of sort of you know quieter pacing it's a lot of, it is a quintessentially japanese film and it's a very low stakes picture 
Yeah, it's very it's very low key. For Studio Ghibli, it definitely sort of runs the gambit of either the world is ending or it's a very minor issue. But considering that the film made before this, Nasuga Valley of the Wind, is a sweeping epic and with weird goo monsters and yeah. gliders and adventure, you couldn't be more different. No, you've also got Laputa in between. Yes. And Laputa is, again, similarly a very a very big rising adventure movie mm. filled with going to all of these fantastic locales. Cannons, me- mechanical beings, just big stone palaces exploding. And in terms of Hayao Miyazaki's oeuvre, this is the film that kind of brings him back to Japan. Because up until this point, most of his projects, at least projects that he was leading, yes. were very much these bombastic adventure movies. I'm currently taking this source from an Anime News Network article in 2018, which, you know, kind of uh, took a look back on My Name of Totoro and its Japanese influences. Like, Miyazaki was very... You know, he was admitted to being, you know, a bit of a Europhile. And apparently, you know, he said that he'd gone to Switzerland to learn how to draw plants and wildlife. Yes, when I believe that that was when him and Takahata were working on producing Heidi, Girl of the Alps. Yes. And they went to Switzerland to get some inspiration. There's a very key quote, which is the most Miyazaki thing I've ever heard and made me burst out laughing. So he thought when in Switzerland, the greenery in Japan is better. And despite being a self-confessed Europhile, Miyazaki decided to create a film that captures just what is so spectacular about nature in Japan. Although it ends, in quotation, although I still hate Japan, Miyazaki added. (laughs) Of course he does. Just what a quintessential Hayao quote. That that kind of captures Miyazaki very much. And when you sit and think about it, about how much he talks about him not liking Japan in his current state because this has been I mean, that's that's a theme that recurs in a lot of this his is work. in the 80s when he was like oh it's too urban it's too industrial yeah. but even people like Toshio Suzuki was like mate what are you on about it's fine like he's <laughs> he, he's always had like a very specific view of how Japan yes. should be that he's very much tried to force in his films ever since you know he started picking up a pencil and was paid to do so yeah this but this is Totoro's the film where we really see that coming together where we really start to see Miyazaki's own vision of Japan and what that means for him and as a kid who would have been growing up in the sort of 40s and 50s 40s more specifically this is a movie that is it almost feels like a homage to that time period like there there's not very many elements of modernity here you've got cars you know you've got things like that there's electricity obviously but you still have things like oh the car like the one of the girls at one point in the story has to go to a different house in the village so that she can use a telephone it's a world of japan that how she how she's supposed to do a tiktok with a dial phone <laughs> what, what what a horrible society they must have lived she can't even snap gram her rice ball ah uh, you know kids are inventive they'll figure out ways just 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 print it off Gabe, does our generation deserve climate change because i think our generation deserves climate change uh maybe you might be right about that but now nah, we'll, we'll knock with that hard that's that's too harsh that's way too harsh I was going to say, if you deserved climate change, it was implied that, you know, you'd get a swift death. Oh, no. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the season two long-awaited appearance of my uh, grumpy Scottish uncle 
who doesn't like many things but knows a lot about anime. What do, what do you think about My Neighbor Totoro, uh, Grunkle Greg? It reminds me of the days in Scotland, except we'd only have one giant beastie per, per village, and it was just my Grunkle Gregory. You see, I'm technically Grunkle Gregory the Seventh. What happened to the other six? Nobody knows. That's slightly disturbing. Are they just wandering in the Scottish Highlands now, ghosts that have been stripped of all knowledge of anime? Eh, possibly. I mean, my, you know, I remember when Japan was first created, it was mostly just a, sli- a little bit of China. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it should have kept it that way. Then they wouldn't, you know, polluted the, the, the cultural identity with all this fucking Gundam crap. All right, does Greg, does Greg need to go back in his cupboard? I don't, I, I keep putting him there, but he just keeps getting out. I don't know. I think we need to seal the door. He'll be fine, he'll live. He's got his body pillows. He'll be alright. I still don't know if anyone finds this bit funny! I'm just gonna continue to do it until I get a written letter, not an email, a written letter saying, Grunkle Greg was never funny, this is the worst podcast, I hope you get cocked and die. Like, those words specifically will stop me from doing this 5 out of 10 bit which I thought of on a train home from Devon once. And there you have it, boys and girls. Write your thoughts on Grunkle Greg and send them to uh, Scotland. Just just Scotland, no other address. Just that. I actually made notes for this film, but it took me 17 minutes into this goddamn production to make me realize that I'm just not qualified to host a podcast. <laughs> See, if people cared, they'd have like seven pages of notes and hire an editor. I'm just in my basement doing this off my own back. <sighs> So the film's quite nice, isn't it? It is, actually. It's rather lovely. It's very peaceful. It's very relaxing. There's there's a little bit of excitement now and then. But for the most part, it's almost quite similarly to how we were talking about Earthsea in our last recording. It's very peaceful. You just kind of go along with things as they're happening. No, but something I sort of wrote down is the fact that, like, we talked about Earthsea and it was lacking direction and... Oh, this is not lacking direction at all. I, I've noted down here that the way that the girls run, they use their entire body and the, the, the sort of the art of animating friction is on full display oh, there's, here. There's so much detail. There's so much trademark Miyazaki detail in this film that it's astounding. There's like even sequences with May, the younger girl, going down, going down a set of stairs where she has to go down them like one at a time yes. and like move for two legs. It's like, that's how toddlers go downstairs. See, I've, ri- I've written here that like they have a sort of a very throwing limb energy, like to how kids are who, you know, they haven't quite mastered what movement yeah. is well, yet. They're, they're still learning how to walk and move and talk and do all of those things that humans do. And I was going to say their running cycles never seem like they're repeated. Like, no. it's, I mean... I, I can't confirm this directly because, you know, I'm slowly losing on my mind. My memories are being replaced by, you know, tumultuous anime knowledge. But when I was watching this yesterday, it seemed like every time they'd do a run cycle, it'd be slightly different. And that sheer amount of detail and care is wonderful. But it also made me think, wow, Miyazaki must have made some interns fucking cry making this. <laughs> I imagine he's made a lot of interns cry over his years. But he is creating a film here that is very different to the kind of things he's done before, but it doesn't lack any of his detail or his creativity in any way. The movie is very 
rather than being a fantasy about going on these big adventures, it's a fantasy about the mundanity of everyday life. It's a fantasy about just slowing down. Yeah. And kind of looking at... It feels like looking at childhood from an outside lens. Yes, it's idyllic. It, I wouldn't say that it's not fantastical, uh, you know, removing the big fluffy forest monster aside. I remember when I used to go down to the wee Edinburgh Festival and get the cat bus, which was a bus made of cats, and we'd travel down to throw rocks in the pond in, in order to wish that the English would all die from a plague. Are you sure this isn't just you mixing up the memories from when you used to huff cat fist out of a bag? <laughs> just just get just get a bag of piss and just I'll have you know that was premium cat urine that we had to go down <laughs> to Glasgow. See, back in the day, Glasgow was just another village. It wasn't just a big city. Where everything like there was Glasgow North, Glasgow South. We can't be asked to remember them all. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I picked up my first manga volume of Tetsuo 28 and was like, this is a bit crap, isn't it? <laughs> He's not even getting in the fucking robot. Uh, I was a wee lad of 74. <laughs> <laughs> I did it. I got... He's funny again. <laughs> I mean, you know, of course he's funny. He's definitely a separate entity and not just me doing a very piss poor of a friend of mine's uncle. No, absolutely not. Uh, Graves, Graves, oh, Graves, gone back to his cupboard now. He's he's clutching his pillows. Let's carry, let's carry on. I think he's you know he's just become a tree spirit, much like Totoro in this. Like you know, Grunkle Greg only allows you to you know see and hear him when he wants to rant about either Scotland or the declining quality of anime or manga. <laughs> But we won't see any decline in quality in our rose-tinted perceptions of the past, eh, Hayao Miyazaki? Because that's kind of what, okay, so what he's doing in this I movie. have to bring something up. So, dear listeners, last episode we covered Goro Miyazaki's debut film, The Tale of Earthsea, and its very troubled production yes. and its troubled relation between its director and his father. Now, the father in this film looks an awful lot like a young Hayao Miyazaki. And he's caring, and like he believes his children who talk about spirits, and he's very patient with them. And watching this, I'm like, what the fuck were you smoking, Hayao, to write this so believably? Because, dear God, this is the most fake news bullshit I've ever seen if this is a self-insert. I mean, he writes better followers than he ever was himself, so I think it's fair to him. It's his escapism. I wish I had children who could discover spirits. Oh, what's that, Goro? You've drawn a building? You fucking failure! Ugh. <laughs> 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 uh. I think even that's a bit too cruel. Is it? Fucking is it? This is a man who encouraged his son's animation team to strike during his debut feature. I don't uh, think Miyazaki is, like, above any underhandedness. So, talking about this as a family picture. So, I have siblings. Do you have siblings? No, I do not. So, this is really accurate to how siblings behave, because especially when they're young children, siblings will often get along like a house on fire one minute and just, like, blurt out something that they really didn't think of and just one of them's crying and the other one just wants to run off because they don't know how to process emotion properly. Yeah. Now, when they talk about their sick mother in this film, 
I think a really poignant scene is when Satsuki, the older girl, then basically does the same thing as Mei, where she just, she cries uncontrollably, but just a little bit later, yeah. almost as if, you know, there's, there's, I think her mother mentions that, you know, Satsuki is trying to be very mature. And I think, I mean, we say that this film is low stakes, but not emotionally. Emotionally, no. their mother is suffering from the, the 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 vague virus that keeps the plot along in terms of the events happening this is very low stakes there's no threat to the whole world there's no evil wizard trying to attain immortality or any stupid shit like that it's it's a much more human stake of you're watching a film about two gar- two young girls facing the reality that they might their mother might not be alive soon yeah and that's that's very emotional, and it really hits home in a lot of ways. I mean, it is a hopeful ending, but very much it it is. Oh, it, oh, it is. The film's very happy, and it's very hopeful, but it doesn't. It's like it doesn't shy away from these. No, it, it's it's a realistic. What well, was realistic is a, a film about a, a big weird bear creature and a, a a cat boss with no spleen can can be where their mother doesn't come home but it's implied that she will very soon and i think that's we do see that in the sort of like end title credits as well speaking of the credits i did not expect this film to open with like a two-minute musical segment kids movie man it's all about i'm 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 aware like sounds and colors but it definitely was huh yeah i forgot the i I forgot the demographic of this wasn't just white people who do podcasts (laughs) Oh yeah, Japanese people actually do watch anime. It's not just It's fucking wild. It's not just Caucasian teenage nerds, you know? It would be if it was proper like it used to be. I mean you're like fucking 270, Greg. Back in my day I used to sail my rowboat down to Kyoto and I'd steal animation cells from Toei Animation so I can meet my own anime. They were crap. I'd only be able to get like a, a foot and like another foot and like a big robot. I called them expressionist film. I was crap. I hated myself. <laughs> so two feet and a big robot. A certain director might be trying to make a mech movie out of that. <laughs> uh, I think, like you know, much like Uncle Greg's uh, emotional crisis, I think this film is kind of about looking at different ages because something that is really unique about this film is the fact that if this film was made in America at the time, you would have. The parents don't believe the children. Yeah. There's a big magical beast living here. And then the big magical beast appears. And then they're like, whoa, 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 what? The, the children were right the whole time. And then it's got to help the big beast or whatever. That's, that's very true of a lot of Disney and Pixar movies. Is you, you see that trend pop up again and again and again of kids see something magical. They tell their parents and parents are like, that's bullshit. What are you talking about? Go away. But in this movie, we don't see that. Smoke your cigarettes, you dumb child. Yes. Here's your here's your pack of Marlboros that Disney sponsored. Um, watch, your, watch, watch Song of the South in theaters soon. <laughs> That'll set you right. But all of the adults in this movie are very, very agreeable. Yeah. They're very supportive and loving and caring towards the children. And they don't shite at them. They don't tell them off for things. They're just very accepting. The dad in particular is just very open and very honest with his kids. And when they start saying things to him that are are far-fetched, that are maybe hard to believe, he just rolls along with it. And it's just like, oh yeah, sure. You know, the the forest spirits only want to see you. 
when they want to see it, only want you to see them when they want you to. Mm. It's things like that that you're just like, oh, so it, it leans even more heavily into the idea of this film being idyllic, this film being a fantasy, of this film being Miyazaki's own vision of what Japan should be. Yeah, but ironically, that being said, I found a lot of American links in this movie. And were Hayao Miyazaki still alive, like my weird Scottish great-uncle, he would likely try and drown me for saying this. Miyazaki's still alive. Oh my god, he is. Yeah, he is. I forgot Hayao Miyazaki still walks the earth. <laughs> We've been talking about him in retrospect so often, I just assume he'd passed away. He's, he's still making a movie. Oh god, he is. Yeah, he's been doing it for like... What five six years now, where he's been making his movie after his last his last his, I think this is like his fourth last film, but this is pro probably is going to be his last movie. He's just immortal, isn't he? Uh, he's probably traded Goro's soul for like a precious few years of existence at this point. So no, my my actual point aside from forgetting that Hayao Miyazaki isn't fucking dead yet. <laughs> was the fact that I see a lot of classic Walt Disney films in this yes. in this movie. In particular, the adaptation of Alice in Wonderland. I see a lot of links in between the spirituality and a young girl discovering sort of very quirky animals that sort of understand what she's saying, especially sort of the bit where May and Satsuki and their dad are sort of running or run crawling in those sort of little... Uh, bush crevices. That's that was very Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, I think a lot of the genes of Alice in this movie are really just the acceptance and almost like the mundanity of supernatural occurrences. <clears throat> the Totoros are just kind of there. They just they just live in the woods and they're just hanging out doing their thing. Totoros got got to go get on a bus. Um, the sit sprites are just living in that house because that was their home. And whilst the, like, whilst the movie is ostensibly focused on Totoro, it's fucking called My Neighbor Totoro, it almost, feels, it almost doesn't feel like they're not the focus. They're just a part of this world. They're just a part of this fantastical, idyllic Japan that exists only in memories and only in ideas. Which is actually kind of really interesting, is the fact that we talked about in our Princess Mononoke episode how Japan is still to this day 60% forest, yeah. possibly more. And the fact that Japan must have this kind of relationship with nature, even with its urbanization. Oh, they do. There are so many things and so many different creatures that still live in the Japanese uh, wilderness that, you know, you'd probably just come across, see for a little bit, and then they'd just scarper off. Nature quite often will want to see you in brief glimpses, but not for an extended amount of time. Like, we get foxes in my area all the time. Oh, well, constantly. Yeah, and they'll just look at you for a little bit, and then they'll just scarper off. Yeah, I, I was walking home the other night, and I had a fox dude just, he just sat in the road and just looked at me. And we just stared at each other for a few seconds, and I was just like, shouldn't you be running away? You got any bagels? <laughs> you got any half-eaten burgers? You got any, got any cigarettes? I eat them. I don't smoke them. You got any, uh... Got any dead rats? Have you seen, have you seen the clip of the fox stealing the zoot? I'll show you later. <laughs> so, what does the fox say? Give me your shoes. <laughs> Give me your shoes. I think you kind of write about that relationship with nature, and I think that's what Hayao's really trying to tap on in this movie. And you can see a lot of influences from things like Shintoism, which is a traditional Japanese folk religion about the worship of just nature. Um, yeah. You can see aspects of animism in it. You, there's so many like 
just quiet small shots of shrines that are just kind of there. There's just quiet shots of nature that don't really draw attention to anything. And it's a very, it's a film that's not only celebrating what Japan was or what Miyazaki thinks Japan should be, but it's also celebrating nature and it's celebrating the kind of beauty that you can see there. I mean, Totoro is in the movie referred to as like the guardian of the forest and it's implied that he's like a tree spirit of some kind, but ultimately it doesn't matter too much what he actually is. It's more the personification of nature that he represents that's the drawing point of him as a character. He's just he's just a big fluffy creature who hasn't been who hasn't been influenced or touched by modern life and just exists purely out in the wilderness soon to be corrupted by japanese capitalism oh isn't everything (laughs) (laughs) but now um toshu suzuki who is the producer of most studio ghibli films talks about this kind of feeling where sort of the prefecture or town of uh uh tokorozawa which is, you know, the place that Totoro was born, in his words. And, you know, he says that he was enchanted with uh, uh, Hachiko Kuyama Park, which is a forested area on the border of uh, Tokokorozawa, and he remarked that this is where the gods dwell. And I'm looking at a few pictures right now, and it is somewhat similar to the film. I mean, this was loosely based to a place where Miyazaki used to live yeah. in the 60s, though he has self-admitted that his yes. memory has somewhat faded from that. Oh, you can obviously, you can really tell that a lot of this is based on Miyazaki's own memories and experiences of being a child and being around early children and being around parents and adults. And it's a narrative and it's a thread that you don't see spring up in a lot of his other films very much. Yeah, a lot of his films are kind of about found family rather than actual blood family. Yeah, yeah a lot of and a lot of his films have very high stakes, very big stories that are deeply political and deeply philosophical. But yeah. this this is one of like the ultimate slice of life stories. Really, it's just about some kids going going through the motions and trying to cope with their mum being ill and moving to a new place and going on some adventures and just playing, being children. And there's a part of me that wonders if it's not me, if it's Miyazaki trying to find some sort of escapism. Yeah, I mean, he's been trying to escape from the modern day for decades at this point. Oh, for basically his entire life. Yeah. I think ever since he started working at Toei, I think he's just gone, nah, fuck all this, I'm done with it. <laughs> but in terms of his career at Toei, there is a very direct link with Totoro and another work from Miyazaki and, Taka- and Sao Takahara's earlier career which is called panda go panda okay so you've talked briefly about this so i'm gonna let you go i I brought this up to jay um, in our preamble panda go panda is a short anime film from the 70s i can't remember what specific year off the top of my head but it's from the 60s 70s uh by a young girl who lives on her own and meets a panda who's escaped from the zoo and she befriends the panda and he becomes her papa and they, they go on adventures and they live together and blah, blah, blah. And the, the comparison is directly immediately there. It's a small girl meets big fluffy furry creature and they just have slice of life adventures. It's much it's much smaller scale even than Todoro is. It's only about 45, 50 minutes. There's two, two films of it. Takahara was the director on that, but Miyazaki was involved in the creation of it. The whole I mean, that through. sounds like a lot of their career in the 70s. Yeah, their, their career in the 70s was very... Um, 
even in the 60s a little bit was very much them working together on a lot of projects. Takahata would usually take the directorial role, but Miyazaki would still be involved in directing the vision of what the project was going to be. And while I would say that Panda Kapanda has been years since I've watched it, it's very much Takahata movie in its directing style, but there's a lot of Miyazaki's DNA touching that, and I think that he really took a lot of inspiration and a lot of influence directly from this and applied a lot of that to Totoro. And I, I'd go like, I'd almost say that Panda Kapanda is kind of a, it's almost like a prototype to Totoro in a lot of ways. And if you're interested, go check it out. Just if you're interested in the historical value, go give it a watch. It's only like an hour and a half for both of them. And you will get a little bit of an insight into the kinds of stories that Miyazaki really cut his teeth making. Because we look at Miyazaki as being a filmmaker who makes these big bombastic adventures, as we've said many times. And Todoro isn't like that. Todoro has a lot more in common in Miyazaki's earlier career creating works and shows that are much smaller scale and much more down-to-earth working on stuff like Heidi or Panda Gopanda yes. or even um, Akagi no An. Lots of works like that that are just slice-of-life stories that are just about living, being people. And that's what Miyazaki's really trying to channel here, I think. And uh, speaking of the complexities of life, I found another interview. This is via like a Crunchyroll article where Miyazaki insists that Totoro would have eaten Mei and, <laughs> uh, and, and Satsuki, but uh, he wasn't hungry at the time. So um, I'm reading, the, I'm, so I'm quoting this. So, well, paraphrasing first of all. Hayao Miyazaki like, sp spoke to a woman and of what kind of films she'd seen recently, and she responded with My Name But Totoro, and she talked about how, you know, she loved the film and it brought lots of character and, you know, uh, lots of, you know, magical furry woodland dwellers of good character. Miyazaki responded with concern, telling the woman that Totoro and company were in fact hashed, like, quote, terrible creatures, and the, only re <laughs> and the only reason they didn't eat Satsuki and Mei during the film was because they weren't hungry at that moment. So here's the thing. Immediately, Kenji Itso spoke up and said, what the fuck, bro? <laughs> he said that Totoro's molars designed for grinding grass like a herbivore, and there's no way it would have eaten Satsuki and Mei. So, I love the... I'm, look, I'm gonna be real with you. I think that Miyazaki just really, really likes fucking with people. Oh, of course he does. I actually don't think he's as much of a grumpy bastard as he lets on because he can't be after making films like Totoro and Spirited Away. I think he just likes messing with people lots. He really is the Stanley Kubrick of Japan, isn't he? Um, would you go that far? I don't know. Yeah, I think I would after all the stories I've heard about Miyazaki. Yeah, that's fair, actually. Look, I didn't say Alfred Hitchcock. There probably wasn't a moment where Miyazaki asked a woman to dress in a seductive Totoro outfit whilst he pleasured himself against his... I'm going to stop now. Yes, please. Uh, let's just be glad that Miyazaki not, that never got to work with Shelley Duvall. Oof. So, when it comes to children in media, usually in anime, be it English or Japanese, it's just a woman doing the voices. Usually, and yeah. I have no problems of that because getting kids to act is a fucking nightmare and yep. on screen and doing them to voice act 
is also a bit fucked. So I assume you watch this in Japanese. No, I watched the dub. Oh, I'm surprised about that. I don't, I don't hate Ghibli dubs. They're generally well done, generally well produced. I mean, because they have the actual money behind them for them to be well. I mean, we, we discussed in our Mononoke episode, sometimes it's very difficult to translate. Okay, so you match the lip flaps and then you act as opposed to just going off on a detail. But yeah, the Disney dub of this, using children... The reason I want to ask about that is that there's an advantage and disadvantage to this, and that is it's more quote-unquote realistic, but at the same time, what emotion is genuine or what emotion is the fact that, like, oh, fuck it, the kids will that'll do. Yeah. I think that the kids in this in this movie did a fantastic job for, I mean, their kids. You can't expect too much yes. from them in that regards. They are great. They're fantastic. The whole film is... The dub is pretty fucking serviceable. Yeah. I wouldn't say that there's anything in it that's hugely stand out in a, oh, well, this is a great role. This person smashes it. I'd just say, no, everyone does a pretty great job. Everyone's solid. Got no complaints. I've got nothing that I would say is especially standout. I, I have one particular fact about the dub, which pleases me a lot, but the only I'm going to care about. The voice of the father yeah. is a man called Tim Daly. I recognize that name. He is the voice of Superman in Superman the Animated Series. Yes. He does a few other things like... Yes, yeah. but that's his, probably his most famous role for nerds, and I find that quite funny, how it's basically just Clark Kent lecturing these Japanese children about respecting nature. And following the American way. Yeah, there we go. As all good Japanese children must do. Look, it was, it was the 80s, you know, American culture was seeping its way into Japanese society, whether they liked it or not. Oh, American culture had been in Japanese society since, like, the 40s. Oh, I'm aware, but they were less subtle about it now. <laughs> Say they're more subtle about it now. No, in the 80s, they were less subtle. Oh, in the 80s, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, they weren't subtle about it in the 40s and 50s either. Gabe, would you describe nuclear Armageddon as a particular subtle message of colonization? I mean, that's not where I was going <laughs> at all, but... Uh, it always comes back to that, doesn't it, whenever we talk about old anime? Yeah, that's because a lot of that's what a lot of old anime ultimately goes back to, really. Thank thankfully, Totoro doesn't. I'm so glad. Well, speaking of that, the fact right. that this aired as a double bill with Grave of the Fireflies. Yeah, that's the other thing. Um, so if you haven't seen Grave of the Fireflies, it is a war movie about two children trying to survive during the firebombing of Tokyo. Mm. So Tokyo, it's Kyoto. Somewhere in Japan. Well, at the end of it, you probably couldn't tell considering everything was rubble. Yes, probably. Um, it's a very dark movie. It's very depressing. Uh, it's very sad. Yeah. Um, and this was decided to play with the, ha the happy tree spirit anime where two girls grow a tree and they have fun adventures. This is either the best marketing decision ever made or the worst one. And I love this fact. I'm honestly not sure which it is. It could really be because it's a it's a brilliant artistic decision but then i'm also sat looking at it going that the mood whiplash there must have been extraordinary yes. i, I kind of want to do that as a double bill just to see what it feels like oh i'd cry so much oh yeah absolutely mostly because i'm alone but you know also the movie yeah uh, that's true in short this made a lot of money so the rough estimate is translated for I think inflation this made about over 40 million dollars equivalent That's pretty solid I think it's lifetime growth growth is something like 1.4 billion yen oh, yeah 
So when Ghibli films were coming out in the 80s, particularly films like Laputa, um, Grave of the Fireflies and Totoro, they weren't they weren't massive successes. Yeah, so like Streamline Pictures, which deserves its own episode, frankly. They were one of the early providers of anime movies and VHSs for America. It was made of a bunch of alumni who had helped make Robotech. And so they graduate to do actually importing anime. Streamline Pictures imported Castle of Cagliostro. So Streamline like ported this over with VHS and Laserdisc in 1993 and 1994, and then later on DVD in 2002. And then that was with the original dub. The Disney dub, which we watched, was yeah. made in the mid-2000s when the license expired and Disney snapped that up. So this did... How this was in the ground roots of second generation anime fandom with VHSs and stuff, but I largely imagine with the influx of, well, that big spiky man was a bit cross and he punched the other big spiky man, and also the robot is a metaphor for war, it probably maybe got lost in the shuffle because it wasn't an action series. So I imagine a lot of the love, though it may have been cemented a little bit, in that VHS era, I imagine this probably got most of its love on oh, DVD. For West, for fans like Side of Japan, especially like Anglosphere fans, absolutely. Yes. Ghibli, in terms of its success, really begins to take off in the mid 90s, especially leading up to Princess Mononoke, yes. which is its big so the oh we, oh we covered we covered it dear god did we and so it's uh, it's from there that it really starts to filter over into english-speaking territories and it's also when japanese when japanese fans start to go back and re-watch all of these films films like laputa especially had gotten a lot of its success from television reruns over the years it had naturally built up an audience and Toto is very similar in that it's very much slowly become a part of the cultural zeitgeist yes. in Japan. A, I'd say Totoro is on the level of any other like famous plush or famous toy that you would get in English-speaking territories. Yeah. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but you get where I'm going. I mean, speaking of that, like in Japan, the film had sold 3.5 million DVD units. Yeah. It's huge. It's an institution to the point where Totoro is a character in the New York Toy Story movies. And that Lifetime home video release was now 7.8. So yeah. I was going to say, like, despite being massive in terms of merchandise, Totoro is still weirdly also a cult film, which is definitely funny to think about. But then again, also understandable because it's mainstream, but also a very personal work all wrapped yes. into one. I In Japan, I would not say it's a cult film oh, dear purely God, no. because of how popular it yes. is among children. I was more but referring to the Western interpretation. The Western fan base is very much cult because it is extremely popular, but extremely popular within its own little niche. And the cult following behind this movie is fucking huge. Including, including famed Japanese filmmaker Akira Kurosawa. Hey. Who cited My Neighbor Totoro as one of his favorite films? Oh, good old girl. Oh, and this I was love in that. this was in Far Out magazine. Yeah, no, that's the director of Seven Samurai and Yojimbo loves the cute spirit cartoon. This would have been in his period when he was making like his big samurai epics as well. So yeah. I'm just like, oh, 
or no no because he was pretty much almost retired by the late 80s and just working on he he achieved the he achieved the dream that miyazaki has been chasing for half a decade just going away well he did go away until spielberg and lucas came and dragged him out and was like you have to make more movies and he was like okay Okay. I think that's how Miyazaki feels about how most of his fans and arguably how Suzuki's treated him. Whenever Miyazaki's tried to retire, Suzuki's just turned around to him and gone, nah, you're not allowed to retire yet. You're still going to make us more money. So I think we've said all of our piece into the actual film. I think so, so where do you think it stands in comparison to the Ghibli catalog? Because I'd say in terms of imagery... Totoro is among one of the most iconic animated films ever made. But in terms of Western fandom, which is what this podcast focuses on, I don't think it's nearly as popular as your Howl's Moving Castle or your Princess Mononoke's. I, the film itself, no. I would not say that it reaches the heights in terms of respect, love, and popularity yes. that films like Spirited Away do. But I think, but it's transcended the film medium just by like everyone seeing the image of Totoro, Satsuki, and May fishing, or them by the bus stop, or people love having a little like Totoro key ring yes. or a little plushie or something like that, or the sit sprites. It's it reminds me like of, genderless merchandise yes it reminds me of our discussion in our episode on serial experiments lane where how lane's popularity grew through its aesthetic and almost to a point aesthetic memory baby yes where the opening and the song associated with that opening have become so much more than that show ever was yes and i think the image of totoro and the image of little girls in native japan exactly have become bigger than arguably the company it's that spawned them so like totoro is ghibli's logo to this day for a good reason i think totoro is kind of where ghibli began to sort of codify the kind of style of films that they were going to start making Mm. miyazaki's immediate follow-up like a year later to this film is kiki's delivery service which follows a lot of very similar themes um of just to a slightly older girl's perspective yes like totoro is very like kiki's delivery service is very much about a young woman going out into the world and trying to make it on her own but my neighbor totoro is very much about a young child just being a little child and just enjoying the beauty of life and the beauty of nature and going out and having adventures and getting into these magical adventures that might be real or might not be real but it doesn't matter if they are or aren't because they're kids having fun yeah if any of it like one of the major through lines of this film being that this the this tree spirits they you know they can only be seen if they want you to be seen is in many ways it's kind of also like innocence Yes. And imagination. It's only there if you want to see it. Yep, and it's only there if it wants to be seen. Mm. I think that's all I have to talk about. I think it's a very good way of ending it. Yeah. I think my last comment about this, that people was making the rounds on the social medias recently. The social medias? Oh no! Where there was a story about when Totoro was originally being localized and they were considering changing the name of Totoro to something more more suited. Oh god, yes, I want to hear this. And they were floating around a lot of names. Come on, and come on, one come on. that they eventually settled on was My Neighbor Craig. <laughs> <laughs> no! Yeah. No, I refuse!
refuse to believe you. Oh no, and the reason that they did not go through with this is because Miyazaki looked at it and said, I would not name him Craig because I would not like to be named Craig. <laughs> And that is why we have our neighbor Totoro and not our neighbor Craig. I think that's all from me. <laughs> oh, that's oh, that's so good. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad I can bring a little bit of joy into your life. Uh, yeah, and, and you know what? That's what Totoro is all about. So this has been the Garugamesh podcast. Uh, remember to rate and review us on all your podcasting apps and listening goodness and uh talk to us uh on garugamesh pod on twitter and gmail and uh leave us a very nice review did we make you laugh did we make you cry did we entertain you for about 55 minutes whilst you were doing something else you know let us know and don't forget to address your handwritten letters regarding the quality of uncle greg's humor to Scotland. Yep, Scotland. Just the just the whole nation. They'll know what to do with it. Exactly. So, um, in conclusion, I love sushi. I love Japan. And I love you all for staying fans. Good night, everyone. Cheerio. Too late to give you back. My receipt is gone. And I'm starting to look back at everything that's going wrong. Know how I used to long to hold you in my hands Such a shame it took six weeks shipping directly from Japan Not gonna lie, you were kawaii, but now your paint job's chipped away Your shining gloss once put my family in strife For what I owe to you, I swear I could die All these body pillows I left hanging dry Oh darling, we're a mess Listening to Garugamesh